There is a principle that I know to be true. The principle goes like this. Proven track record merits trust. So a proven track record merits trust. When you have seen uh, something function uh, over a course of time and it continues to operate or function in that same way, you can have reasonable trust that it will continue to do so. So if something has a proven track record, uh, it merits your trust. Uh, Think about your uh, relationships with uh, close friends. The reason that you trust them, the reason that they are close friends, uh, is because they have been there for you time and time again. Again, they, they have that proven track record, and because of that proven track record, it merits your trust. Or think about uh, even the products that you buy, uh, from toothpaste to detergent to uh, you know whatever products you buy when you go into the store generally speaking you know what particular product you're going to buy because you have bought that product before uh, and it has worked out well some of you are very particular about coffee you have to get this particular coffee because this is the one that I like I've had all the other ones they're terrible this one is the best one and I'll fight you to the death over this particular coffee because I know it's the right one Right? It's that proven track record. I've, I've had it before. I know it's the best. We, we even use this principle uh, in, in parenting, don't we? So proven track record merits trust. Uh, just Tuesday, I was uh, with my daughters uh, hanging out uh, in the backyard, and, and for Christmas, Lydia got uh, a pink Power Wheels tractor. Right? It, it's amazing. Uh, it has two speeds. One is like turtle slow, uh, but then like you move it down into second gear and you basically have to jog to keep up with her. Uh, and so she was recklessly driving this thing super fast down in the second gear. You know, she only knows one speed. That's fast. Um, and it, like she goes fast or she's asleep. That's kind of her MO. Um, so she's driving this thing dangerously close to her little sister. So I stop her, pull her aside, and say, hey, if, if you can't, you know, be careful driving this around your little sister, then you're not going to be able to drive it fast. You're going to have to drive it slow. Though I had warned her two minutes later, there's Tally laying on the ground as a speed bump as Lydia runs over her. <laughs> And so I went and, you know, told her, hey, we have to leave it in one now in the, in the first gear setting. You can't drive it as fast as you would like. But if over time I see you drive it responsibly, proven track record, then I'll let you drive it fast again. Trust. Um, Tally also uses, employs, this is our youngest daughter, she also employs this same principle, proven track record merits trust. Uh, she is the more timid one. Uh, and so anytime anything new is introduced, particularly uh, slides, swings, trampolines, uh, let me just tell you, she's not going on it first. Not going to happen. Now, she will stand off the side and watch. And if other kids go on it and they don't get hurt, die, or cry, uh, then, then Tally will then go, go down the slide. Or, but, but she has to see someone else do it first. She's looking for that proven track record, right? Does this slide kill people? No, it doesn't. Okay, then I will go down it. She is waiting for that proven track record before she trusts the trampoline or the swing or the slide. Again, this is a principle that we all know. This is a principle that we all employ. A proven track record merits trust. Friends, we're we're here in church, and so let me just say this clearly, emphatically, and loudly. 
God has a proven track record. God has 2,000 years of written history in our Bible showing time and time and time again um, his faithfulness to his people. Though, though the situation looks grim, though it looks terrible, behind the scenes, God is being faithful. He is faithful to love, to save, to serve, to continue to chase and love and, and hold dear his children. His track record is impeccable. And so because his track record is impeccable, he merits our trust. Not only is it 2,000 years of written history that we find here, and, and some people might, might look at that and, and, and feel like that is far away, but, but what I'm telling you is not just written history, 2,000 years of written history in the Bible. However old you are, that is uh, how many years of a track record you have to show that God has been faithful to you. To, to, to see that in your day-to-day -day life, time and time again, God has come through for you. He, he hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. He has always been there. He's always gonna be there. He continues to come through for you. And so because God has a proven track record of 2,000 years of written history, because God has a track record in your life of coming through for you again and again and again, not leaving you and not forsaking you, God merits your trust because he has a proven track record. So then, why do we struggle to trust him? Right? The, the, the track record is there. It's a proven track record. No, no one's going to dispute that. Again, 2,000 years of written history. In your own personal life, we could go around and share stories about how God has been faithful and caring and loving and merciful to us again and again and again. Yet, we doubt him. Yet, we seek to control situations. Yet, yet, we're often frantic and nervous and scared and worried about the future. Yet, we often play the what-if game. What if this, what if this, what if this, working through in our minds every possible negative outcome there could be. What if it's this, what if it's this, well if it's this then I'll do this, and if it's this then I'll do this, and we find ourselves working out every negative scenario so that we're not finding peace in God, we're finding peace in our solutions to bad problems. Why do we struggle to trust him? He's got the track record. We know the principle's true. I think we struggle to trust him because we become overwhelmed by circumstances. The, the circumstances that, that come in essentially begin to cloud our minds and, and we can't see it, we can't remember it. Um, his track record essentially escapes us. So, so here's what I want to do today, Okay. Um, as, as the lead pastor of this church, I'm, I'm sometimes called the, the, the teacher or the lead teacher. I'm, I'm not going to do much teaching today uh, be, because we know, don't we? We know this story, right? Disciples in the boat, Jesus stands up, calms the storm, everybody goes home, it's a good day. We, we know you heard it in Sunday school. If you grew up, been in and around the church, you, you know this story. And so instead of teaching today, my heart is that I'm just going to be reminding. I'm going to be the lead reminder today. I want to remind us of God's faithfulness, that he's been faithful, and he has a proven track record to care for us, to love us, to serve us, to not leave us or forsake us, so we can trust him. We can trust God today. 
We can trust him with our future. We can trust him with our finances. We can trust him with our children. We can trust him with our health. We can trust him with our houses and, and, and with our cars and with all that we have and all that we are. We can trust God with it. So, if you're taking notes, jot this down. In every storm, there is an opportunity to trust in and marvel at the power of Jesus. He's got you through it before. He'll do it again. The, the disciples in this story have a great opportunity. They've got this opportunity to marvel at and to trust in the power of Jesus. Again, just like in any storm that we go through, the person who spoke the sea into existence is in the boat with us. And in the same way, the disciples are there. Uh, they're in the boat. There's this massive storm, yet they're afraid even though they're in the boat with the guy who spoke the sea into existence. That There was a great opportunity in that moment to, to trust, to trust in the Lord and to marvel at his great power. He got us through before. He'll do it again. Proven track record merits trust. So, like I said, if you were raised in and around the church, uh, we're pretty familiar with this story. Uh, we, we know Jesus calms a storm. Maybe you, uh, you know, saw it on the flannel graph in Sunday school. Y'all don't know what that is. Uh, for others of us, we saw, uh, you know, vegetable characters act this thing out for us. Uh, so so we're, pretty, we're pretty familiar um, with it. But um, if the moral of the story here is Jesus calms the storms in your life, if that's the moral of the story here, I think I should just say that three or four times. Uh, and we should get the band back up here. They should sing. Uh, we could get to lunch probably about 45 minutes earlier than we normally would. But I think it's a lot more nuanced than that. The, the story goes beyond just Jesus calms the storms in your life. Let's take a look and go ahead and dive into our text today. Go ahead and get this text in front of you and have your eyes on it uh, so that you can make sure what I'm saying is true. I'm not making it up as I go. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. So uh, verse 35, on that day, on what day? Well, uh, if you've been tracking with us, you know that Jesus has been teaching on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he has been teaching and preaching parables, uh, the parable of the soils and the parable of the lampstand and the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, he has been teaching and preaching, and it's on that day, on this same day, um, when evening had come. So uh, Jesus has been preaching all day. Uh, he, he has been sitting in a boat. If you remember, that's where Jesus was. He's in the boat. The crowd is essentially on the shore. Uh, they're kind of in this um, almost outdoor amphitheater type, type situation to where Jesus can be heard by thousands and thousands at one time. That's why he's in the boat. He's also in the boat so the crowd doesn't crush him. And so he is there preaching, and he has been preaching all day. Now, uh, I know this looks easy, uh, but preaching is actually kind of exhausting, 
Uh, preaching is, is, I often refer to, it's almost like doing f- like 45 minutes to an hour worth of cardio. That's how you physically feel uh, when you step off of the stage. I think it's uh, even more particularly exhausting for those who are filled with care and conviction for the people that they are communicating to. Because if you are filled with conviction, that means you really believe what's here in the Bible. You're really um, convinced that the Word of God is true. And if you really care about people, then you really want them to hear you. And so in your mind and in your soul, you're straining and straining and striving and striving to be clear and to be concise and to be heard and understood so that you would be out of the way so that the Word of God would then implant in the hearts and the souls of the people uh, whom you are communicating to. And so uh, not just physically, uh, but also emotionally and spiritually, there's great stress that uh, comes along with preaching. And Jesus has been doing this all day. Uh, I I remember once I preached three services in the morning uh, and then a fourth service at night. I preached four times on one Sunday. uh, And I thought like it took me like three days to recover Uh, here. Jesus has been preaching all day long. So it makes sense that when he gets in the boat, he's asleep. Okay. So on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Uh, Now, what Mark does not include for us here is the reason Jesus wants to go to the other side. Some have said, well, he was trying to get away from the crowds um, so that he could have some rest. But we know that as soon as he gets there, uh, he casts out this demon and, and basically gets right back to work. Here's what we do know, if you would, just flip over uh, chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 38. Uh, here's what Jesus says, Mark chapter 1, verse uh, 38. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. I, I think the reason that uh, Jesus is saying, hey, let's go across the other side is he wants to go preach to some more people. So exhausted from preaching, uh, Jesus is thinking about more preaching. Uh, You have to understand Jesus' ministry is a preaching ministry. Yes, he healed people. Yes, he cast out demons. But that was to show the power and authority in the word that he came to communicate. So he says, hey, guys, let's go to the other side. We're assuming we're making a guess um, that the reason he's wanting to do that is to go and preach. Now, uh, here is a question that we don't have to make uh, a guess at. How did the disciples get into the middle of this storm? Jesus called them into it. Jesus is the one who said, hey guys, let's go to the other side. He knew where they were going. He knew where they were headed. He knew what was in store. Remember, yes, he is fully man. We're going to see that, that he is absolutely 100% human as he is exhausted from preaching and goes to sleep in the boat. Yet he is also 100% fully God who knows the future. And so he is calling them into the storm. And so again, the, the parable is a lesson here can't be, hey, Jesus calms the storms in your life because it is actually Jesus himself who is calling these disciples into the heart of the storm. Jesus says, hey, let's let's go to the other side. So why does Jesus call them into the storm? It's clear that he does. Jesus is the one that says, let's go to the other side. So why does Jesus take this particular opportunity And this particular setting, again, Jesus isn't going around uh, willy-nilly here. Why in particular is he calling these fishermen 
into a boat in the middle of a storm. Well, Jesus does this to show them that the place where they felt most in control, that it was really God who was holding it all together. We, we know that Simon and Andrew and James and John, these guys are professional fishermen. Again, think um, deadliest catch. Like that's, these are rough um, seafaring gods. This is how they spent their days on this sea. They knew the sea. They knew boats. They knew sails and, and nets. This was their whole life. These were tough men. This was the area that they felt most in control. You, you could almost imagine, you know, them thinking to themselves, here's the poor carpenter, you know, He's got them land legs. He, he needs to get across uh, you know, the sea here. So us fishermen, us sailors, us masters of our own domain here upon these, uh, these seas, we will help poor carpenter Jesus who you know, doesn't know, uh, you know the stern from the, the mast or the aft from the you know, whatever. You know, I don't know boat terms. Um, he doesn't know any of that stuff. And, and so we're going to help Jesus get across. And so it is this particular venue, it is this particular place that Jesus calls them into to test their faith. Now, Jesus is testing their faith here. It is not as if Jesus doesn't know the outcome. That's often how we think of tests. Or that's often how we think, hey, Jesus is, is calling us into a storm. It, it is not as if Jesus is wanting to see what they are going to do. He's God. He knows what they're going to do. Oftentimes when we think of tests, we think of the tests that we took in school. Again, you get your number two pencil. Uh, we did Scantrons. You guys remember the Scantron? Yeah, we had the number two pencil. The scan they probably don't even do that now. It's probably, you know, computers or something. I don't know. Um, and, and the teacher would give us that because she wanted to see what it was that we knew because she didn't know. So she had to test us. But that is not what's happening here. Jesus is testing them so that they can see where they are not so that he can see where they are. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Often Jesus chooses to test us in the areas of our greatest overconfidence. <laughs> Jesus often tests us in our areas of greatest overconfidence. The, the places in our life where we feel like I've got it together. I, you ever say this to yourself? I know what I'm doing. Right, this, this is, okay, confession time here. This is one of my constant mantras that I'm telling myself as I go throughout my day, I know what I'm doing. I've got this. And this is where Jesus loves to come in and say, you think you've got this? <laughs> Hilarious. Let, let me test you in this area and, and show you, although you feel like you are so in control over this one particular thing, let me show you how out of control you truly are. And so Jesus draws them into a boat in the sea where they feel the most comfortable, where they feel the most confident, yet they find themselves totally out of control, totally at the mercy of the elements. So jot this down also. For Jesus to crush your delusions is the most loving thing he can do. The reason my business is so successful is because I'm so smart. The reason I got the promotion is because I work harder than everybody else, right? The reason my marriage has lasted this long is because I am so understanding, 
The reason my kids behave so well is because I am a strict authoritarian and I make sure they always follow the rules. And, and so it is so gracious of Jesus to come in and crush those delusions. To say, uh, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not because you're so beautiful, it's not because you're so smart, it's not because you're so awesome, it's because I'm so gracious. And so it is so loving of Jesus to do this. Here's the truth, friends. You can't calm the storm with a command. We often feel like we can. I mean, can you imagine how silly it would have been for Peter or Andrew in the middle of that to stand up in the boat and go, storm, stop. <laughs> it would have been so silly of them, and they would have looked silly. Everybody would have laughed at them if they would have done that. We cannot calm the storms in our life with a command. We can't control them. We can't stop them. We can't defeat them. We are powerless, helpless, and hopeless to overcome all of the difficult circumstances in our lives. We cannot command the storms in our life, but Jesus can. So pulling you away from false confidence and pulling you into full confidence in him is the most loving thing that Jesus can do. So don't rest in yourself, rest in him, because eventually you will realize that you are not all that you were cracked up to be. And so by Jesus saying, don't trust in yourself, don't trust in your own abilities, trust in me because I have the proven track record. Again, look at my word, look at what I've done in your life time and time and time again. I've been there for you, I've been there for you, I've been there for you. Don't trust in yourself because you're going to come to the end of yourself. You'll realize you're not all you're cracked up to be. Trust in me because I'm the one who's actually going to get you through the storm. So, just like the disciples, Jesus calls us into the storm to show where our hearts are. He wants the disciples to see where they are. You see, standing on the shore, as Jesus is teaching and preaching and doing all the parables, if you would, disciples, disciples, come on, gather up, guys, gather up, huddle, let's do a huddle. Do you guys trust that Jesus cares for you? Oh, oh, standing on the shore. They're right there. I mean, there's thousands of people gathered to hear Jesus. Oh, absolutely, yes, Jesus cares for us. We trust him. I mean, we left our whole business to follow this guy. Yeah, we trust him. Yeah, we know that he cares for us. And then the circumstances come, and the storm comes, and they don't believe that he cares for them for one second. So, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, um, just as he was. So Jesus didn't take the boat to shore, get off, uh, have a sandwich, lie down, change clothes, nothing. I mean, he, he preaches, I'm assuming prays at the end, says amen, and they go. They, they took him just as he just as he was, and there were other boats with them. So just imagine as the disciples and Jesus leave, again, people are still following him by the thousands. Um, and so several of them apparently get into boats, and as his boat is going across, they're following him in the boat. And so it's, uh, again, in, in the stories that we read, and or in the stories that we you know, read in Sunday school or whatever, you kind of just think about Jesus, the disciples, they're the only ones there, but apparently there's lots of other boats 
that are following Jesus that are also in the middle of this great storm. Now, verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. These guys, again, are accomplished fishermen. Uh, that, that was their full-time job. Uh, they had fished at night. Uh, they had been out on this lake several, several times. They knew it like the back of their hand. Again, this was their livelihood. This is where they grew up. Yet this storm is pretty intense. Now, not to get too far into meteorology, but the Sea of Galilee sits 700 feet below sea level. And right next to it is Mount Hermon, uh, which is 9,200 feet above sea level. So essentially what you have is a very low-lying sea and right next to it, a very tall mountain. So what happens is the cold air is coming down off of the mountain. Warm air is rising up from the Sea of Galilee, which when they meet, create very uh, intense storm systems. Uh, and and they, they come up very quickly uh, and it is still that same way today. It is known as a very violent sea, a very dangerous sea uh, to be out and to be on. They find themselves in this position to where there is uh, becoming just as much water outside of the boat as there is inside of the boat. Again, it, it said uh, on that day when evening had come, so let's just add to the pressure that this is nighttime. It's night. They, they don't have waterproof flashlights, okay? It's nighttime. It's dark. It's storming. The boat is being tossed to and fro. Waves are crashing in over the bow and water is coming up. And, and they, you can just imagine them frantically with buckets, you know, filling and, and trying to bail out the boat. But the boat now is becoming swamped, right? So this is a, a very, very uh, terrifying scene. The truth is, if this boat sank in this storm, they would have drowned, Okay, this is not, um, if you study the, the geography, this is not uh, like Granny's Backyard Pond, right? If you fall out of the boat, you know, just doggy paddle to shore, you'll be fine. This is a massive sea to where, where they were. If you fall out of the boat in the dark in a storm, you're going to die, okay? So what I want you to see here is that they are beginning to be overwhelmed by their circumstances, the circumstances of life are beginning to cloud their minds. I, I think we would be good to be constantly reminded that we can trust him, we can trust him, we can trust him. Because as circumstances come in, as things change, as, as difficult news comes about, our, our minds slowly begin to cloud over and cloud over and cloud over and we can't see his tracker, we can't remember his faithfulness. And so we need to constantly be reminded, I mean, how helpful if someone in the boat, you know, as the boat is being tossed to and fro, as it's filling with water, if someone was constantly yelling out, guys, we can trust him. We can trust him. I know, I know it's terrible, but we can trust him. It's getting worse, but we can trust him. So the boat is filling. The situation looks bad. Now let's watch the situation get even worse. But he was in the stern asleep. The boat is filling with water. It's nighttime. They can't see. If the boat capsizes, they all drown and die. And Jesus is asleep. Right? I mean, has anybody ever felt like that before? 
I mean, it's dark, the the storm is raging, the boat is filling, people are screaming and yelling. You're, You're looking around wondering what God is doing, what's going on, and it feels like Jesus is asleep. Again, you have to imagine, again, just cutting back to, going back to uh, his 100% human nature, that he's just totally exhausted that he's actually sleeping through all of this, being jostled back and forth. People are yelling, screaming. I mean, he's obviously soaking wet as waves are crashing in. So he's being splashed with water. People are yelling, and he's still asleep. Here's the most interesting thing, that if you go through Um, the the gospel accounts, you'll find Jesus sleeping on very few occasions. You want to know when Jesus is sleeping? When there's a storm. (laughs) When everyone is sleeping, Jesus is usually awake praying all night. But when there's a great storm and everybody's freaking out, Jesus is asleep. You see, Jesus trusts the track record of his father. Right? You, you almost get this picture in your mind, and it's not in the text, and this is just me making stuff up, so there, I've said it. You can almost imagine Jesus laying in the boat, right? And, and he's laying there, and he's getting all tucked in. You know, he's, he's in the stern. It says, so he's in the back of the boat, and there would have been a cushion back there, and he's getting, you know, he's exhausted preaching, getting all cuddled up, and they, they set out. And, you know, and he sees the dark storm clouds, and he's like, oh, a storm that could totally kill us all. Hmm. All right, I'm going to sleep. Try to keep it down, fellas. Right, just doesn't even care. Total trust in the Father that he is able to sleep through the storm. Obviously, this is much the consternation of the disciples who are a little bit frustrated with Jesus at this point. Maybe they're frustrated because he's not helping bail out water. Maybe they're frustrated because they feel like he should be doing something. But in any event, you can sense their frustration. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him And said to him, teacher, do you not even care that we are perishing? I mean, again, we're we're only just imagining how that conversation went. You know, we're we're only imagining, you know, what the disciples, I mean, you know, they say, all right, who's going to wake them up? Let's do paper, rock, scissors, decide, you know, uh, draw the short straw, whoever draw, you know, um, I don't think it went down like that. Nor do I think they went over to him, you know, and gently, you know, uh, he grabbed his shoulder, you know, Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus. Um, yeah, sorry to wake you. Um, some of the other guys are a little nervous, you know, about the storm. So if you could, you know, just whenever you're ready, you know, I don't want to rush you. I, I, don't, I don't think it went down like that at all. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not even care that we are perishing. Now, we get this account in Luke and also in Matthew. Luke's accounts record that the disciples say this, Master, Master, we are perishing. And Matthew records uh, that they said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. So some would say, oh, there we go. You know, the, the gospels are inconsistent. You know, one says they said this, one said they said that. Uh, absolutely not. The, the gospels are not inconsistent. Again, the boat is being jostled back and forth. Waves are crashing in. There's a bunch of dudes in a boat. Listen, they're all yelling, okay? They're all yelling at Jesus. Master, master, save us. Do you not even care? They're all yelling at once. They're all trying to wake Jesus up. So, the question, this, this particular question that is asked here, 
I'm going to make an assumption and say that it's, it's likely Peter who is asking this question because we know that uh, it is Peter who is informing Mark, and Mark is essentially ghostwriting for Peter. So this is Peter's eyewitness account, so we can make that safe assumption that it's likely Peter who asked this question. Look at the question in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What a question to ask Jesus. What a question to ask Jesus. Do you not even care? You see, the truth is, their immediate circumstances overpowered their assurance of Jesus' heart, his word, and his power. The circumstance they found themselves in the place where they felt most in control, the place where they felt most confident, that whole world had turned upside down on them. And because of that, they lost their confidence in Jesus's heart. Again, if you would have asked them under any other circumstances, is Jesus faithful? Does Jesus care? Can you trust Jesus' heart? They would have said, absolutely. But as soon as their world got turned upside down, as soon as the circumstances came to bear on them, they no longer trusted Jesus' heart. They no longer could believe that Jesus really cared. Because, listen, if Jesus really cared, he would have been doing something. Or he would have been doing something differently. Or, I mean, he, what's going on? So, so they, because of the circumstances, they lost assurance in Jesus's heart. They also lost their assurance in Jesus's word. What had Jesus said before they left out? Let us go to where? The other side. Jesus had said, this is where we're going. We're going to the other side. That's where we're going. Jesus had not said, hey, let's go to the middle of the lake and drown. He didn't say that. Possibly if he did, no one would have went. But what he said was, Let's, we're going to the other side. And so not only did they doubt Jesus' heart, that he really cares for them, that he's really got their best interest in mind, they also doubt his word. They don't believe that they're actually going to get to the other side. That's why they say we're perishing. They also here um, have lost their confidence in Jesus' power. Had they not seen his miracles, had they not seen people who, who were, were, were paralytics stand up and walk? I mean, they'd seen that. Had, had they not seen the power of Jesus to cast out demons? Had they not seen the authority in his teaching and thousands and thousands of people coming and having their lives changed? This is a guy who was directly connected with God the Father, and they had seen it. There had been so much evidence for them to believe that he had the power. But here they are. Because their world got turned upside down, their immediate circumstances overpowered their assurance of Jesus' heart, his word, and his power. Friends, how often do we affirm God's heart, God's word, and God's power for us on Sunday morning and go out and live like we don't actually believe it? Sitting here on Sunday morning, guys, listen, it's so easy to say yes and amen. I, I trust God's word. I, I build my life on God's word. I trust in God's power. I know he can do miracles. I know he can get us through any circumstance, no matter what it is. But Tuesday morning when you get that phone call, 
Wednesday evening when there's a bad wreck. Friday night when you find out that you just don't have the money to cover all the bills. When the doctor says it's cancer. When you lose a baby. Do we say it then? Do the circumstances come in and cloud us so much that we've forgotten his track record? Does the circumstances come in and cloud out the truth that he's been faithful time and time and time again and that his proven track record merits our trust? No matter how he's going to get us to the other side, I mean, you can imagine if you would have asked the disciples, hey, you guys are going to get to the other side, but um, i got two options for you. One is a terrible storm, uh, which is going to scare you to death, or the other option is smooth sailing. Which one do they choose? But the truth is, uh, Jesus was in control of that circumstance, and the most loving thing he could have done was to take them through that storm. So here is how much Jesus cared. This question that is being asked here, do, do you not even care? How much did Jesus care? Well, not only did he care enough uh, to crush their delusions, which is a very loving thing that Jesus does for us, um, to, to remind us that we must be fully, completely trusting in him. But does he even care? Jesus cared enough to come and to humble himself, taking on human flesh and form. Jesus cared enough to live the life that we should have lived, meaning in total, complete, full, perfect obedience to God's word in deed and heart, meaning that he obeyed all the laws and it came from a heart that loved God so much that he wanted to obey all of God's rules and laws. He loved us so much that he lived the life that we should have lived. He loved us so much that he died the death that we should have died. He was tortured. He was beaten. They plucked out his beard. They spit in his face. They beat a crown of thorns onto his head. They nailed him to a Roman crossbar where he bled and died. That's how much he cared. Jesus, do you even care that we're perishing? Jesus' response, that's exactly why I've come. Because you're perishing. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, hear me, you are perishing. But Jesus has come so that we can have full life in him. Though we may go through storms, though Jesus may call us into storms, he has come so that we can have life in him and so that we may trust in him to get us through the storms. So, listen, if you are fearful, frightened, afraid, feeling alone or uncertain, Jesus cares. So trust his heart, his word, and his power. For those of you who are here this morning, that that is what is really going on inside of your heart. You are feeling frightened, afraid, alone, uncertain. Please hear these words today. Jesus cares. He cares. He knows where you are, and he knows what you're going through. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion 
And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This next verse is astonishing. And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now, wouldn't you have loved to have been there? When, when I get to heaven, I'm a, Jesus, I got to get a playback on that one, right? Put up the heavenly monitor and just let me watch it. I, I got to see how this one went down. So Jesus stands, and, and the word that is used here is he rebuked. He rebuked. Where have we seen Jesus rebuke before? Flip to Mark chapter 1 and look at verse 25. Just listen to this. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Jesus has rebuked demons. That's exactly the same word that's used there, that's used here. So the power to command Satan and demons that he displays here uh, in the spiritual realm, he is also using that same power in the natural realm to command the sea. Again, the person who spoke the sea into existence is essentially telling the sea what to do, and he has the authority to do that because that sea is his. And so he stands and rebukes the wind and the sea, uh, he says, peace, be still. Uh, there are exclamation points here for a reason. Uh, he didn't say it quietly. He didn't say it calmly. Uh, he stood up and with a loud authoritative voice said, peace, be still. Essentially uh, in the Greek or in the Aramaic, what you have here is him saying, be still and stay still. Peace, stop what you're doing, freeze, chill out, halt, be still, stay still is essentially what Jesus has said here. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus did not have to speak. He is the all-powerful creator of the universe. He didn't have to speak a word. He could have quietly in his heart said, peace be still, and the waves and the sea would have stopped. But he speaks out loud for a very specific reason. You see, here is what Jesus is doing. Jesus shows us he is fully human as he sleeps in the boat and fully God as he commands the sea. Jesus is putting on display his deity for the disciples. He is showing them. This is why he has drawn them to this very point to show them, to teach them. Why has he got them in the middle of this storm? Well, it's to show them where their hearts really are that their hearts are often fearful and they don't really trust, even though they would say and think that they really do trust. He wants to show them that. And then he wants to show them, again, give them one more evidence, one more, one more reason for them to fully and completely place their trust in him, which is he is fully God. Friends, this is where our Jehovah's Witness friends go wrong. This is where our Mormon friends go wrong. Jesus is not one of many gods like what the Mormons would believe. Uh, Jesus is not second to God the Father as what Jehovah's Witness would believe. He is of the same substance as God the Father, fully equal to God. He is fully human in the sense that uh, he had to grow up. He had to learn things. He had human flesh. He was hungry. Obviously, he was tired from preaching. And he is fully God, meaning when he speaks, the sea listens. When he commands Satan and demons, they must listen because he is the authoritative creator, king of kings, lord of lords of the entire universe. So the sea listens. And it says, verse 39, And he woke and rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace be still. 
and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, this was not a coincidence. The wind didn't slowly die down. The waves didn't die down after a few minutes, or else they would not have had this reaction. It went from total chaos to total calm. So the moral of the story is not Jesus can calm the storms in your life. Now he does and he can, but the answer here is much more nuanced. Again, in every storm, there is an opportunity to trust in and marvel at the power of Jesus. He got you through before, you can do it again. The disciples failed here. We're going to see them fail a whole lot more. But, but just imagine, just imagine the reaction if the storm comes and Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat and there they are, hunkered down in the boat, hanging on for dear life, but laughing and looking back and just waiting for Jesus to awake, knowing that no matter what happens, we got Jesus in the boat, waves crashing in on top of their heads and they're just hanging on laughing as, as, as the seawater starts to fill up the boat. They, they're just laughing. We got Jesus in the boat. Let it fill up. Let the winds come. Let the sea rage. We got Jesus in the boat. Friends, I, I, I hope that God would come and cultivate a heart just like that in the people in this church. Let the winds come. Let the waves crash in over the bow. Let the boat fill up. Let it be dark and us lost. We got Jesus in the boat. Let that be the hearts of the people at Gospel Community Church. Sadly, the disciples failed this test, but they had not seen the resurrected Christ. Friends, we have seen the resurrected Christ, and so we have every reason to trust his track record and to therefore trust in him. Friends, you can trust in Jesus. You can trust in Jesus. You can trust him with your life, with your money, with your marriage, with your kids, with your finances. You can trust him. I want to remind you today. I know you know this. I know you know this, but I want to remind you today. I want to remind the fearful. I want to remind those who are grasping for control. I want to remind the afraid. I want to remind the weak-hearted you can trust him. Let's see how this concludes today. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He said to them, why are you so afraid? You see, Jesus had given them and has given us every reason imaginable to trust him in the storm. I mean, again, how many scrapes has Jesus gotten you out of? How many scrapes has Jesus gotten you through already? Jesus had gotten them through many storms and has gotten us through just as many. You see, if you're taking notes, jot this down. Storms are profoundly revealing. Storms are profoundly revealing. In, in my life, as, as circumstances have come, I've, I've seen myself react both ways. And, and I pray and beg the Lord 
that I would begin to cultivate a heart that when the circumstances come in, my knee-jerk reaction is just to trust. Is just to trust. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Let the resounding answer from our hearts be, by your grace, I'm not afraid, and I have faith that you'll get me through. The text is very interesting what happens next, and they were filled with great fear. This is a very interesting reaction uh, for them to have. Jesus does this, and they're scared. You know, it, it's almost, why wouldn't they high-five each other in this moment? Right? There they are. They're freaked out. They're scared. Jesus says, peace be still, and everything goes calm. And they look at each other and go, yes! Boom! High-five! Dude, we are on Team Jesus, baby! Did you see what he just did? That is awesome! But that's not what they do. They're afraid. They're afraid because they began to realize that they were looking at God. And if God, if they could see God, then God could see them and could see their sin and could see their doubt and could see their true hearts. Let me just say this. If there's never been a time where you've been a little bit afraid of Jesus, I don't think you understand the Jesus from the Bible. I don't think you understand the Jesus who returns with a sword coming out of his mouth to slay his enemies. I don't think you understand the Jesus in Revelation who leaves his enemies dead on the battlefield for the birds of the air to come and consume their flesh. Friends, we serve a terrifying God, and so they were rightly afraid. But here's the good news. We have a way to be friends with that terrifying God. You see, they, they call him the Lion of Judah for a reason, be, because he is a terrifying God. But, but we have a way to be friends with that roaring lion and not have his claws used against us in wrath and anger, but used for us to protect us and get us through the storm. And so maybe they found themselves, these disciples, as they were standing there and saw all of these events unfold maybe their hearts begin to go back to a psalm that they would have learned in synagogue. Psalm 107, 23 through 31. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. Sound like anybody that we know. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the depths. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted the waters of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when the waters quieted and brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. This great psalm prophesying the deeds of the Lord written hundreds of years before this event came to bear and came to wait on these men as they looked upon the person who commanded the waves and the sea and knew that he was the Lord. And it filled them with great fear. 
they conclude with this question that Mark doesn't answer for us. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You can look at the beginning of chapter 5. It says uh, they came to the other side of the sea. But the, the question simply doesn't get answered. It's, it's thrown out there as, as a given of who this is. I'm telling you right now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, this is the question that you must answer. Who then is this that commands the sea? Who then is this that commands the waves? Who then is this that has the power to cast out demons, that has the power to change lives, to heal, to save? Who who then is this Jesus? Is he just a moral teacher? Is is he just a fairy tale, a a, a fable? Is is he just a a trickster? Uh, Who is this person? Well, this is the God-man. Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Christ, Lord, King, King of Kings, King of the Jews. Jesus is the Savior, the Redeemer, the Healer, the Conqueror, the Deliverer, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, the Master, the Last Adam, the Word. He is our great Rabbi, our great Teacher, and Jesus is the Friend of Sinners. That's who then this is. He's Jesus. He's God. He is worthy to give your whole life to, to surrender, to stop trying to control everything, to to stop trying to to get it all together yourself. He is worthy to trust your whole life to. That's who this is. Who is this? Well, Jesus is clearly in this story the greater Jonah. You see, there was another guy in the Old Testament who was asleep in the back of the boat during a great storm. But you see, this Jonah, uh, he was tossed overboard so that the storm would stop. But Jesus stands as the greater Jonah and commands the storm to stop. That's who this Jesus is. I'll close with this. The greatest storm you will ever face will not be your circumstances. It will be doubting that he cares. It's the greatest storm. As circumstances crowd in, as, as the the cloud in your mind begins to blot out what you know about God to be true. It's not really the circumstances that are the greatest issue. It's believing that he doesn't really care. It's believing that he's ultimately fully and completely asleep in the back of the boat. That's the greatest storm that we face. When storms come, trust him to get you to the other side, however he sees fit however he sees fit. Financial storm, maybe he takes the house. Maybe it doesn't end the way that you want it to end. But trust him to get you to the other side, however he sees fit. What you must do is take the opportunity to trust in him more deeply and marvel at his power. I'll close with this. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Let's pray.